This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky from the Connecticut Mirror, and tonight is the second of our three legislative session previews. I'll be joined by Connecticut Mirror's economic development reporter, Erica Phillips, housing and children's issues reporter, Ginny Monk, and justice reporter, Jaden Edison, to talk about some potential legislation to look at for this session on their beats and some other things that they're following right now in the news. Tonight's events made possible in part through the support of CBIA. You can learn more about CBIA's 2023 Transform Connecticut Policy Solutions at cbia.com. And we want to thank them because this is the third year in a row that they've sponsored this event. It's really appreciated throughout the years that we've been doing these events at the Connecticut Mirror. We've always been able to count on them. So thank you to CBIA. Okay, with all that out of the way, I can introduce once again our panelists, uh, Erica Phillips, Jaden Edison, and Ginny Monk. Thank you all, first of all, for being here. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Happy to be here. Hey, and, and Ginny, I'm going to start start with you, if that's okay. What I want to do is just get a, a little bit of a sense from each of you about how you're thinking about this legislative session, who it is you're talking to, what are some of the big issues, just just broadly, what are you thinking about as, as this gets underway and you're thinking about your reporting work over the course of the next couple of months? Yeah, so I guess, first of all, it, it's been sort of an issue for many legislative sessions. Uh, zoning is a big question on the housing beat uh, as it has been in years past. Um, I'm talking to advocates, I'm talking to housing experts, legislators, uh, and and also uh, sort of spent the last few months uh, speaking with tenants who were facing eviction, which is another issue that I'm uh, following this legislative session, as well as some other sort of landlord-tenant relationship bills. Obviously, uh, zoning is something we're going to get to in more depth in just a little bit. Uh, anything having to do with housing is something that comes up in Connecticut a lot, as I think I told you earlier today when we were preparing for this, is probably the conversation I've had most often when I've I've talked to uh, Connecticut lawmakers and also to Connecticut Mirror reporters over the years. Do you get a sense, Ginny, that, that more and more people at the state capitol are talking about these issues, that this is really something that they're hearing about from their constituents, and that people say, you need to do something about because of the lack of affordable housing because of the high cost of housing here in Connecticut. Absolutely. I think there are some outside factors, uh, inflation that's making the cost of living continue to go up. Uh, and, and when you add to that rents that are rising and we have the lowest vacancy rate for apartments in the country, I think a lot of legislators this session are really prioritizing housing as an issue because they recognize they're hearing from their uh, constituents that, that something has to change. People people are having a hard time getting by. We'll get more into that. And I'm sure we're going to have lots of questions about that in just a little bit. Jaden, how about you? What are the things that you're really watching right now at the beginning of this legislative session? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm new here to Connecticut, so I got here in September. So this is my first Connecticut legislative session. So really, you know, a lot of it has been um, so far, just getting to know who's who, talking to a bunch of, you know, advocates and being at the LOB, you know, introducing myself to lawmakers and whatnot. You know, I found, you know, in this kind of expanded, you know, our, this beat in particular has largely focused in recent years on what's happening inside the Department of Correction, um, you know, and in, in, in prisons, jails, et cetera, et cetera. And so I've tried to really take a, a, a little bit of a broader definition of justice. And so, you know, particularly like today, for example, you know, I was at the LOB and, you know, there was a, you know, a press conference held in, in a, to, 
to announce, I guess, the, the state level Voting Rights Act, right, that would essentially um, take a lot of the protections that have been gutted at the federal level um, via the, which was via the 1965 Voting Rights Act that has been, you know, amended and amended uh, time after time that have been gutted by the uh, Supreme Court um, and, and issue some of those protections locally, right, you know, and I, I think also when you go back to what's actually happening inside prisons and jails, there's a lot, I think, um, that, that people are sort of looking for. I know in particular, I'm sure folks on this call, um, you know, Stop Solitary CT has been huge on on trying to limit strip searches inside the Department of Correction, right? I know they, you know, were the proponents behind the Protect Act um, last year, which was a was a massive bill that essentially, you know, created a, a some, some form of oversight um, over the DOC. But in addition to that, kind of limited um, the conditions um, in which people could spend in isolated confinement. So that's another one that I think will be very interesting to see how that plays out, you know, among public hearings and among, you know, advocates um, in relation to that. When you note the success that, you know, the, the advocates have had um, in that realm. I think also another big thing, too, which for me is new to me, a new area that I'm kind of uh, have taken a crash course on um, is bail, right? I mean, bail is a is is something that's a, a hot button issue for a lot of people, and so I mean, there have already been, I think, I've counted, I think, a handful of bills, right, that have already been filed in relation to bail. I think at least one that has already been um, voted on to be drafted, right, to reform the bail system, right, to to kind of maybe you know, essentially look like places like New Jersey, right, that uh, uh, that, that have sort of, you know, made, you know, strides in that area. So those are some of the big ones that I'm looking at, um, you know, uh, but but I, I think, you know, there's a lot uh, out there. I mean, I, one thing I forgot, clean slate, right? When you talk about the legalization of cannabis use, right, uh, that's one part of it, right? There have already been expungements started for some 44,000 people um, by Governor Ned Lamont's administration, but there are still hundreds of thousands of people um, as a part of the bigger clean slate effort um, mm -hmm. who've been delayed essentially, right, to, of having their records expunged. And so there's just so much legislation, uh, the, the potential for so much to happen. Mm -hmm. But those are some of the key ones that I've been looking at and learning about. Well, and we'll get into detail on some of those, but I actually want to get back to something you said, which I think is a really interesting reframing here for the mirror in your, in your beat is taking that broader look at justice and the fact that you did cover uh, the Voting Rights Act today. How do you see justice coverage? Because, I mean, a, a lot of people on, on this beat broadly, it used to be called criminal justice. And right when you put the word criminal in front of it, it says something very specific. You're covering cops, you're covering courts, you're covering jails. And there's also a, an, uh, I, I guess, a bias toward the idea that this is criminal behavior somehow. We used to call it justice. That opens it up to a whole bigger issue, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I, I think you have to look at a couple of things, right? I think when you look at the mirror's role, um, you know, and uh, being able to provide the kind of behind the curtain stories, right? And I think, you know, some of these areas are, are let's, just, let's just call it what it is. I mean, a lot of these are areas that are vastly undercover, right? When we're talking about voting access, right? When we talk about bail, you know, I had a conversation with some folks in the, uh, in the uh, legislative office building last week in Hartford who were just telling me about all the stories in bail that have sort of gone unreported and whatnot, just by virtue of our, our news landscape, right? Like not having the resources uh, that we once had. And so I think the mirror plays a unique role in being able to fill some of that void. And also I think the mirror also has given, I mean, each of us reporters, a lot of, uh, a lot of what, real estate to kind of pursue what, what, where our interest mm -hmm. lies. And so for me and my background, right, I've always been interested in how race 
sort of informs and how divided our, our country and our states and cities are along the lines of race and how that's at the foundation of, of virtually, you know, everything that we, you know, talk about yeah. on a day-to-day basis. And so for me, you know, those are, are huge things, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested and in tune with what's going on in other places when it comes to, to voting access, when it comes to environmental justice, which is a place that I love to report on at some point as I get more acclimated to this beat. Um, and, and just so many other things. Obviously, Jenny, you know, can tell you all about housing justice. I mean, there are so many different things and different avenues. And so yeah. it, it, it is a challenge, right? Because, you know, especially getting started, you want to be able to zero in and, and kind of build a knowledge base. But, I, you know, I, for me, though, I, I think long term is just continue to kind of plant seeds in different places and mm-hmm. see, you know, and, and, and essentially revisit them at some point down the line and do more in-depth stories. Well, and I actually want to turn to Erica here. And, and Erica, before I ask you about some of the, the things that are really at the top of your beat right now and things you're looking at this legislative session, I think much like Jaden just talked about in, in terms of covering justice, economic development, I don't know, it used to be a business beat. You know what I mean? Like economic development could be seen as what are the manufacturers? What are the big employers in the state trying to do? How are people investing in the economy of Connecticut? But I know that you view it as a much broader thing. How do you view covering economic development here in Connecticut? Yeah, I mean, I I see almost every story as an economic story, and maybe maybe there's something wrong with me, but <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's it. You know, if you think about every human being, that human being has a lot of potential. And um, when when leaders say they want to grow the economy, they know that they need people. Um, Connecticut has this conversation over and over again that the population is flat. Well, there's a lot of people here who uh, are not in the workforce, who uh, can't, you know, can't really fully be in the workforce for whatever reason, uh, can't get to a job at certain places. So there's there's a lot of untapped potential here. So I think about that. I think about those things a lot, and I think the the state leaders are thinking about that as well. So Lamont has has stated you know, his number one goal is to grow the economy. He, and he says this a lot too. He says, uh, I don't want to raise taxes. I want to grow the number of taxpayers, right? So we want to get more people in jobs. And um, there's a lot of work that goes into that. There's a lot of initiatives at the legislative level that are, that are happening for that. Um, so there's, so workforce is a huge theme um, on my beat, uh, as well as, uh, there's a lot of industries. So we're t- talking about business. Of course, business plays a part in this. Um, industries are adjusting to a lot of things right now. Uh, in some cases, really extreme change, uh, new technology. Uh, and then I just, I sort of always have this vision in my mind of, of every economic chart over the last three years has a huge hiccup, in it, right? Mm-hmm. A huge jump down, back up. Uh, and in, in a lot of cases, Connecticut, uh, and a lot of those measurements hasn't caught all the way back up. And so what's, what are we doing to kind of bring, um, bring that forward momentum back? And that's what legislators are thinking about. So yeah. in really broad strokes, that's what they want. Yeah. And I think, I mean, obviously a lot of your work um, takes place talking with people outside the Capitol, although you're doing an awful lot of work talking with people in the Capitol too. As you think about how, how you're covering this legislative session and the big stories that you have, what is on your plate? Because your beat is a little different than, than Jenny's and Jaden's in that way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just to kind of drill down into the workforce questions, um, what's interesting is just how much overlap there is with uh, higher ed. So you're thinking about 
I, I cover both the Commerce Committee and the Higher Education and Workforce Development Committee. And um, people in the business world and people in higher ed are, you know, I, I haven't been here for that long, but from what I hear from the folks I'm talking to, in some cases for the first times, having really deep conversations about um, how do we make sure that we're developing the workforce that is needed in the state or um, retraining people. Um, there's huge populations of people uh, who have worked in the past or um, are wanting to switch careers or you know, the, whatever they were doing is, is no longer really uh, a viable sector anymore and they need to switch. Um, that retraining um, is, is, these are all conversations that uh, at least since I've been here uh, are really happening among legislators. Um, Lamont has hired a office of, uh, has started a um, office of workforce strategy that's sort of forcing these people into rooms together from, from the higher ed world and from the business world. And, and so there, when it comes to kind of some of the big topics that I'm gonna be covering, there is gonna be a lot of this, this work on labor force retention uh, labor force training and things like, you know, tying uh, student loan help, student loan relief to uh, a job. So if you work for a Connecticut company, um, there are incentives to uh, help you pay off your loans. If you there's a there's a program called Learn Here, Live Here that helps you with uh, home ownership. If you went to school here, uh, you're gonna uh, get some assistance from the state in terms of trying to kind of put down roots here. Um, you know, funding scholarships for students, uh, free community college so that students who are from Connecticut will stay in Connecticut for school. So it's all these kind of like components of really trying to retain uh, the population that is here and, and train folks for the jobs that, that need to be filled. And there's a lot of thinking about that going on. Well, I think that's a good transition to, to get back into some of the stuff that Ginny's covering so closely here. Um, Ginny, when we come to any issues of workforce, there's always a question of where will the people who work in Connecticut actually live? And it's not just Connecticut, obviously, that is that has a housing crisis. It's not just that Connecticut has a problem with affordable housing, but because of the nature of the state, it is more acute. And some places like Fairfield County, where it's very, very expensive to live, it's hard to retain workers. What right now is happening at the state capitol where people are actually saying, we've got to do something about this and we got to make more housing more affordable to more people across the state? Right. So I, I think this is a, a good spot to talk about zoning reform. And, and uh, one, one point I did want to make it is when we're talking about retaining the population, if you think of a family, two parents, two children, when those two children grow up, they need somewhere to live. And often the people who are struggling to find places to live are people like the bus drivers or restaurant workers or grocery store workers. So all of these people need places to live. And, and ideally you get to live and work in the same spot, which, which is very difficult for many Connecticut families. Um, and on the topic of zoning reform, that that often comes about because Many municipalities in the state restrict the amount of multifamily housing that can be built. When I say multifamily housing, I, I mean apartments, um, which tend to be more affordable to large chunks of the population um, that have, you know, struggled to build up the equity required to put a down payment on a home. Um, 
lots of other reasons. There's a there's a couple of notable pieces of zoning reform, one being the work live ride proposal from desegregate CT. Uh, and that sort of provides a few incentives to towns to build more residential density around transit stations. So train stations, bus stops, uh, kind of to encourage walkable communities around these neighborhoods. And there's, you know, environmental benefits to this proposal. Um, many people with lower incomes need to use public transportation to get to work because they don't have cars. Uh, so, so these are sort of the things they're talking about. The, the other one is fair share, um, which would assess the need for affordable housing across Connecticut by region and then sort of divide that need up between municipalities. So it would say to each one, hey, you need to plan and zone for X number of affordable units, and then they would be responsible for doing that. Yeah. Uh, so, so those are a couple of the things we've seen it, it it feels it feels like the first of those two proposals, the the transit oriented development is oriented, and we've heard a lot of this. Some of this has been done in Connecticut, and it's been talked about for quite some time. Um, it feels like that's a little bit more of a carrot, and the second is a little bit more of a stick. Am I am I judging that right? Yeah, that that's I guess one way to to put it. Um, I not having seen the proposal for this year, I don't know that there would be what sort of consequences there would be for towns that don't um, plan and zone for, for their portion. Um, but I, I think people who are in favor of that law would sort of emphasize that towns would not be responsible for actually developing that housing, right? Because towns are not uh, housing developers, but they would be responsible for saying like, okay, we're gonna let you build apartments in this part of town. Erica, had you want to jump in? Just a little kind of, piggyback on what Jenny's talking about. So housing development, which which is necessary, there's a conversation sort of on this business side of uh, some some lawmakers and and uh, and state leaders talking to companies themselves about building their own housing for uh, the workforce that they need. So um, and and offering potentially some state incentives to help with developments like that. So I just that's a caveat to what Jenny was talking about, but there is this, it's very much an awareness on the business side that um, these are really crucial developments. But, but the, the, yeah, but, but, but can business leaders, our business leaders in Connecticut, our individual um, uh, corporations or business organizations pushing to make some of these changes at, at the town level? Because that's really where the changes need mm -hmm. to happen, right? The state can do whatever it wants and try to, you know, force people to develop in certain ways, but that there's always um, resistance of being met. If if businesses are saying, we want to build a bigger facility in town X, but we ain't going to be able to do it if you don't give us some places to, to put our workers. I and mean, is that something that's being talked about in the economic development community? Uh, in in uh, careful ways. <laughs> there's a lot of uh maybe competing interests on that topic so um so yeah the, the the conversations tend to be uh the word the word choices are very careful but uh yeah the, the word, go ahead jenny yeah i will say sort of uh to to add to that um the the press conference to sort of open up work live ride the transit oriented communities proposal was held at a, a business that's very close to a train station. So I think that's sort of the 
other piece to that particular proposal is not just that this business and others in the area are looking for places for their workers to live, but they're hoping more people move in there and can say like, hey, I'm just going to walk half a block down to the gastro park and, and get some food. Um, so that that's the other sort of thing is they want people to live and, and have fun in the same community. I, I do have a question coming in from Margaret here. And again, if you have questions for our panelists, you can put them in the Q&A function at the bottom of the screen. Margaret asks, are there any concerns about environmental exposure when people propose putting new housing near transportation centers? I, I'm sure there's a there's a lot of potential issues in there, Jenny. I mean, one of them is you, you put a, a cluster of people and cars or trains or buses all together and you have more congestion, certainly more emissions. I don't know if that's something that has been addressed by people who are making these proposals. Um, so I don't know that that has been brought up so much um, so far in the conversation, um, but, you know, use of public transit, although there certainly are studies that, you know, show being near certain bus routes, highways can be bad for your respiratory health, um, that use of public transit generally is a, a benefit to the environment because it reduces the use of cars. Um, I, I want to come back to some of these issues in just a little bit. I want to turn to Jaden for a, a second here, because as we talk about where people live, where can, they can afford to live, I want to loop back to the story that you covered about voting rights in Connecticut. What exactly is is being proposed in terms of a, a you know state voting rights act it, we want to make sure that some of the protections for people to be able to go to the polls and exercise their voting rights um, are upheld. What's being discussed right now? Yeah, so a lot of it, too, I think to note that there's been momentum for this in recent years with New York most recently passing, you know, exhaustive legislation, its own state level voting rights act. And so um, Connecticut uh largely resembles that one. I think, you know, there are there are three or four, I think three major, three or four major bullet points that I look at when it comes to the the local voting rights act. I think one of the big things, right, is being able to now mandate um language assistance resources when it comes to people who speak uh languages other than English, right? I think uh that's a I mean, according to the census, right, that that's what a little less than a quarter of, of people who live in Connecticut. And so uh, a considerable number of people um when it comes to you know getting registration forms or I mean whatever you whatever it may be, right, being able to provide the adequate assistance to those people. I think another part of it too is to be able to deter people from acts of intimidation and deception and all those things by allowing people to pursue perhaps uh, civil legal action, right, when it comes to, to you know, having their rights infringed upon when it comes to voting. So I think that's another major component of it. And then I think third, too, is I think the major part of the, the federal legislation that has been gutted by the Supreme Court was the preclearance notion, right? And that was essentially, you know, implemented to be able to, to stop, I guess, you know, places, cities, and or we're talking about federally, right? Like states that have large, you know, long histories of voter discrimination, right? And so uh, what that uh, what that method essentially says is that, you know, preclearance, essentially, if you have a history of said discriminatory practices, that essentially means that any changes to local election policy has to be approved by the federal government. And so the same notion would, would, would take place here in Connecticut if that bill were to be passed in its, in its current kind of language and form in that 
you know, uh, you know, any kind of localities that have histories of, of, of discrimination, which I think it'd be interesting to see what kind of formulas they come up with to determine that. Um, but any, you know, localities with histories of discrimination would essentially have to, you know, seek approval from the state when it comes to changing any local election related policy. So just a super exhaustive legislation. But I, I think, yeah. you know, when you think about what we've seen, you know, nationally, right, like in, in a bunch of these areas were, were things that we once thought was set was set up law, right, when it comes to you know, uh, abortion access, right? When it comes, I mean, all these things, right? When it comes to voting rights, the Voting Rights Act was monumental, right? I think most people, most scholars and historians hold that we didn't have an actual democracy until the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965 um, after Bloody Sunday. And so, you know, you think about what that means and what we've seen recently from the from the Supreme Court majority. Uh, I, I've heard, you know, uh, Secretary of State Stephanie Thomas say today, better to be safe than sorry, right, when it comes to, to you know, implementing these practices and whatnot. And so that, those, but those are some of the big takeaways that I've gleaned from that, from that bill. And I'd be interested to see because it hasn't, you know, it, it's been around for a couple of years and, and lawmakers have been trying to push this. So I'd be interested to see kind of what momentum this might have, you know, after, you know, uh, the majority of voters overwhelmingly supported um, in-person early voting um, on the ballot this past year. Well, yeah, they, and the, yeah, that, that's the big one. I mean, if, you know, Connecticut has been traditionally one of the most restrictive states when it comes to voting by absentee ballot, it, we make it very, very uh, difficult. Um, it's very easy for a state like Connecticut to look down its nose at states in the South that have long, long lines, people lined up to to vote and all sorts of restrictive voting policies, but we don't make it very easy for people to vote uh, by absentee. We've got some questions coming in on other parts of your beat, Jade, and Kathleen asks, will we see anything with youth justice this session? It was minimal last session um, with the election, and there is, of course, this focus on a, quote, rise in juvenile crime. Last session, before you were here in Connecticut, an awful lot of anything that happened around youth justice all had to do with there's carjackings and there's a wave of youth uh, violence and crime. What's being talked about this time? Yeah, you know, that's, that's so that's one thing that's interesting. And we talk about expanding the justice. Be, I, I think that's a part of it, too, and getting involved in that. And I think so far I've seen close to around a dozen or so bills filed with the Judiciary Committee when it comes to um, justice-related things. So, um, you know, some of those have ranged from things like raising the age to, to in which, uh, you know, young people can be, you know, arrested, right? So that's one thing we've seen. And we've also seen a bill, I mean, that, that would essentially, uh, you know, that, that has to do with a, a juvenile policy review board. So some kind of oversight entity of, of how we're handling some of those things. So um, nonetheless, I, I think that's, if, if there wasn't much traction last year, just based on what we've seen so far this year, I mean, 12 or so, a dozen or so bills so far filed, I, I definitely think that'll be something that, you know, we hear a lot about in the coming weeks as the legislator, gets, um, excuse me, the legislature, the Judiciary Committee, and in particular, get settled on some of uh, the bills that it's going to draft and bring forth for public hearings. I'm sure there'll be a lot of contested, you know, conversations about that, and that I'll definitely be in tune with and, and trying to follow. You, you, so, Erica, one thing that I think, you know, as we as we broadly define the the justice beat, you know, one of the things that I think uh, a lot of people in Connecticut for years have talked about around around justice is issues of of healthcare costs, the ability for people to actually make uh, their ends meet, be able to get uh, affordable childcare. These are all real economic development issues. And I know that a lot of employers in Connecticut are talking about this. What are some of the things you're, you're watching uh, this legislative session and covering when it comes to the high cost of healthcare and how we might think about addressing this once again, because this is something that comes up every single legislative session and almost all the time, it doesn't get changed all that much. 
yeah so so thematically uh it's sort of this this concept of enabling the workforce so helping out with things like transportation childcare, uh housing we talked about uh healthcare costs and so forth so that people can go to work because a lot of people just can't um so one of the one of the topics I have looked pretty deeply at is childcare, um, and and this is a, a particularly interesting uh, on the economic development beat because childcare providers are businesses themselves, right? And so there is kind of a, an opportunity. The legislature has seen an opportunity to help those businesses function, which is economic development that not only helps the people running those businesses but helps the people whose children are. Uh, you know, attending childcare at those businesses and those people are enabled to, to enter the workforce. So there's sort of this, if you think about it, kind of this, this um, double, you know, double of impact of, of economic development um, efforts and, and dollars going toward these types of businesses. Um, there, there is assistance for uh, small childcare uh, providers but the numbers I've seen on, on advocates for this sector of what they actually need to, to shore up this industry and to function is in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and it's, you know, it's so much money that, that it can be a little bit, you know, you almost can't get your head around it. But if you think about sort of conceptually, if there was childcare, available in Connecticut to everyone, you know, there's a, that's a huge workforce benefit. I mean, so kind of making, they're making that argument. There, there's, there's a lot of tying it together with um, the economic benefit. I, I, again, just not like, I don't think this is necessarily difficult to get your head around, but, but I've sat around thinking like, goodness, you know, if you, if, if you start, if you decide to have a kid, uh, from zero to five, you got to figure out what you're going to do for work. And that's just how it is. Now, imagine there, there's a state, one of the 50 states where you wouldn't have to think about that, <laughs> right? So it's a very strong economic argument, workforce argument for um, not just childcare, but, but providing the types of assistance that can enable people to work. I think that that makes such a it makes such a good it makes such a good case, and it's obviously why um, people both at the state level uh, at, at the state capital and also in the business community are thinking about that. But of all the industries that were really impacted around COVID, I'd say childcare probably as much as anything else. It was already a stretched thin workforce. Uh, people were working long hours at a difficult job, not being paid all that much money. Uh, a lot of them were due. Uh, payouts from federal relief that they thought was going to be bigger than the thousand dollar check that they were getting. And then, you know, the state came through with a much smaller check. The, the ability to retain that workforce and train that workforce is a pretty difficult one. Even if you found the money, Erica, to be able to do that, that's a big question because that workforce has kind of been decimated over the course of the last couple of years. Very true. So um, there are some initiatives to to try to address that as well. Uh, one is um, making it so that any, any childcare worker, if they have kids that need childcare, that childcare would be free. Right now, it's not. They, they have to apply um, 
for for uh, reimbursements and such. So there's there's like that type of initiative. There is uh, uh, incentives for, for people. These are all proposals, obviously, but for people who go through uh, childcare training, uh, some incentives, I think, on student loans that have been proposed. And I, I may be incorrect, but basically, that that thinking is absolutely correct. Um, you know, the number of slots in childcare in Connecticut has, you know, there's a there's a huge um, disparity like of <laughs> a not available childcare slots. So, and that is because, you know, teachers couldn't do it anymore. There's a job at, at Amazon paying $22 an hour, which I need no training for. Um, and it's less stressful and I might not, you know, so, so on and so on. But um, yeah, the, there's sort of, as with any economic policy, there's trying to figure out the right incentives uh, to shore up different types of, of sectors. And uh, they're thinking about all those possibilities. Um, I, w- I want to turn to you, Ginny, and talk about some of the other things that, that you've been covering. And uh, as we as we talk about already, you know, where people live, where they can afford to live, the, the, the places that they live, there've been a lot of movements over the course of the last couple of years at the state legislature uh, to uh, look at tenants' rights, to look at evictions in the state. These are issues that affect children probably about as much as as anybody, what what are we what are we doing right now at the state level, as we are in this legislative session to look at tenants' rights, to look at how we handle evictions of people, especially at a tough economic time? Yeah, so I think first of all, you hit on something really important, which is that these issues affect children and often affect children disproportionately. Uh, we know that families with children are more likely to face eviction than children, families without children. Um, so there's a few sort of legislative measures floating around this session. Um, some eviction reform bills, uh, one of which would expand protections against no cause evictions, which are typically evictions that occur when leases expire uh, to include more tenants in larger apartment buildings. Uh, There's a fairly large sort of grassroots movement uh, to cap rent increases at 2.5% each year, and that includes between tenants. Um, And then a couple of other things, uh, a bill that would cap the amount landlords can charge for application fees for apartments, uh, lots of things that are looking to make things a little easier for tenants. When it comes to um, issues like uh, capping rent, um, landlord fees, that sort of thing, um, wh- where are lawmakers looking at, at at putting the onus? Is this is this essentially telling landlords what you can and can't charge year over year? Is this giving uh, the tenants themselves more rights to be able to contest? Whenever this actually happens, what's the what's the mechanism by this with by with uh, which this would work? Yeah, so we're still in a part of the session when a lot of the details of these bills are not hammered out yet, and neither of them have had a public hearing just yet. So, so some of those I I can't answer at this moment. But uh, you know, I, I do think you're sort of hitting at a core. Um, point of discussion in this, which is what is the role of government in sort of implementing consumer protections within the landlord-tenant relationship, which is just um, 
super complicated field. Um, yeah, so it's it's been some interesting discussions in the housing committee so far. Yeah, and and putting it putting um, the onus on landlords versus putting the onus on uh, tenants themselves, because this has been, I think, over the course of the pandemic, this has been some of the 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 questions that people have had. Should it be up to to tenants to have to challenge evictions, to have to challenge unfair as they see it rent increases, or should there be some sort of mechanism uh, to actually go after landlords for this directly from the state level or from the town or municipal level. That's a big difference because tenants don't have a whole lot of power to begin with. And they also don't have a lot of time. They're like, I don't know, working and taking care of their kids and stuff. Right. Yeah. And, you know, as far as protections against rent increases, there are Connecticut towns that have fair rent commissions that have some power to sort, to sort of help folks um, sort that out. However, they are not in every town in Connecticut. So again, it's about where you live, whether you have an active fair rent commission in your town. And, and even when tenants do go to the bodies that are in place to complain about problems, whether it be rent, whether it be housing conditions, they are risking an awful lot. Um, so, so I think these bills are, are looking to address these in a, in a way that feels more equitable. Uh, Jade, we've got a question coming in from Barbara who says, um, bail is so important, especially in Connecticut, when the prison population is nearly 50% people who can't afford bail, uh, never convicted of anything, the time spent waiting for justice cannot be recovered. Um, do you have any insight, she asks, into whether Connecticut plans to remedy that fact? I, you know, I do. I really think that, um, and this is, this is, you know, Pierre, just based off some conversations that I've had at the LOB, but it does seem like bail is going to be something that's definitely at least going to be discussed exhaustively, um, you know, within the the Judiciary Committee. Um, I, I know in particular there's been some conversation and some of the reporting I've, you know, I've done over the past several months and, and talking to folks about bail in particular is a lot of people, you know, feel that, you know, there are states elsewhere who who handle bail a, a lot uh, way more, I guess, efficiently, um, you know, than Connecticut does. I know particularly there's a bill. Um, if if I, I can't remember which which bill this was, if this is a bill filed this legislative session essentially that would you know essentially establish a bail system that would essentially be based on risk assessment and danger to a community, right? And so it gives you the opportunity to be able to deny someone bail. Um, if they are, you know, someone who's, uh, who's, you know, uh, determined to be a, a risk or, you know, flight risk or a danger or whatever it might be, and then opening the door for people who perhaps have lower level offenses and things of that nature to not even have to deal with it. So I, I know that is something that has been filed. And I imagine that, you know, what we've seen in places like New Jersey and, you know, Illinois has made, you know, vast changes to, you know, uh, cash, uh, eliminating cash bail. Um, I, I do think that, um, with Connecticut's kind of reputation of, of kind of, you know, uh, you know, being, I guess, at the at the forefront of some of these conversations, at least, um, that it'll definitely be something that becomes a, a, a important conversation within the judiciary in particular. You you mentioned earlier a clean slate legislation. Um, obviously, the Lamont administration has expunged the criminal records of over 40,000 people with low level cannabis convictions. This is all part of uh, the legalization of cannabis in the state, but a lot of the the bigger efforts at clean slate um, have kind of been stalled. Where do we stand right now, Jade? So you know, this has been an entire. I think a lot of the people on the call would probably they probably hear you talking about it and are just like shaking their heads. This this has been 
quite the story, right? I mean, you had, you know, the the essential, this this larger clean slate effort, right? Which this entails multiple bills, right? You have the cannabis-related expungements, which is a part of the legalization of the cannabis use. That's one bill. And then you have the actual, um, which most people refer to as the clean slate bill, which is the one that would essentially erase a lot of the lower level uh, felony convictions and misdemeanors and whatnot. And so, you know, that legislation was passed in 2021. And so, you know, and the idea with that, um, from my understanding, is that you would have an entire year to work out the X's and O's and in terms of, you know, what systems we need to upgrade, you know, what technology we need, who needs to do what, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't until just, you know, within the last couple of months, really just weeks before the new year, when uh, Governor Lamont's administration even, you know, gave word or gave a hint that there will be a delay with that. And so, you know, the, the Lamont administration has alluded to you know, outdated technology systems and outstanding legal and policy questions that sort of need to be answered, um, you know, in relation to those uh, th those lower level, you know, felony uh, convictions and whatnot. But, you know, there, there's there's studies, right, that, that, that essentially, and this is a number that lawmakers have been throwing around, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people who will benefit from the, the part of the legislation, clean slate legislation that hasn't been, you know, implemented yet. And I think what's notable about that is that you had Governor Lamont around the time when these bills, when this bill was being uh, negotiated, you know, Governor Lamont was kind of on the side of, you know, let's, let, let's, let's tiptoe around this. First. Let, let's, let's get us a, a tapered list of crimes first that we do, and then let's see how it works. Let's do it incrementally. Right. And so it is, you know, I, I hate to, you know, I, I think people look at this and are just frustrated um, with the kind of what seemingly to, to advocates, at least and people on the ground who, who would benefit from clean slate. There, there is a seemingly tiptoe and maybe not they don't feel as if, you know, officials and, and lawmakers have, you know, or value some of the issues that they champion very much. And so in the legislature, I think there's real potential now to see some kind of potential clarifying legislation around some of those outstanding questions or the technology. That's something that certainly that uh, Senator uh, Gary Winfield has alluded to and said he'd be ready and he's on board 100 percent to address any of those issues if they come up. So I haven't seen I don't know if it's because I missed, maybe I missed, I don't, I don't, but I don't think I've missed. Um, I haven't seen any clean slate legislation filed just yet. Um, and, but uh, I do think that, uh, you know, people are are really, you know, wanting, you know, this thing to be passed, you know, it was promised, it was touted as this, 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 uh, you know, uh, landmark uh, piece of legislation that would do a lot for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people are just disappointed with the lack of transparency on where that stands. Well, and this is something that always comes up, Erica, too, in, in the state. I mean, there's a lot of different levels at which this, this, makes sense. I mean, one is is very clear. If we're going to legalize marijuana, we need to expunge the records of people who were charged with these low-level offenses. And what that means is we have fewer people in prison and jail. Um, that means we have lower costs to incarcerate those people for things from a long time ago that maybe weren't all that big a deal. But it's an economic development opportunity for the state as well. I mean, look, all of a sudden you have thousands of more workers who are able to get jobs who don't have on their criminal record something that is haunting them from 10 years ago. Uh, when you talk to people uh, on the economic development beat, are you hearing from people that, that legislation like this and actually following through with clean slate legislation gives us the opportunity to have more people, you know, able to do jobs? Sure. Um, and, and I don't know that this is the same population, but the, the re-entry population, the formerly incarcerated population, um, you know, there's lots of opportunities and there's, there's programs uh, trying to um, do, like provide workforce development, short-term training for folks who are um, 
in that transitional period. Uh, you know, cool programs I've heard about, you know, uh, getting a commercial driver's license or um, doing short-term training uh, in, in various industries at the community colleges, um, which are available to, to folks. Um, but sort of on the, on the cannabis side, uh, <laughs> there's lots of interesting, just interesting ways to look at what is happening here. So this is a new industry, right? Adult use marijuana. Uh, a, a high, new highly regulated industry that's where the, the rules of the industry are trying to solve, you know, systemic wrongs going back generations. Um, and there's, there's a lot of really complicated uh, kind of like, uh, you know, where these businesses can be. Um, uh, you know, where the businesses should locate so that they provide the greatest benefit to folks. Um, but I've found it, and this is sort of just sort of an aside, but I found it a really interesting thing to follow um, in terms of just how does a state stand up an industry that is highly regulated and make and has every intention, well, is trying to, to put out that it has every intention to make it very fair and, and use the industry to, to fix systemic problems. Uh, where can it go wrong? The answer is everywhere. Uh, you know, everything, <laughs> everything can go wrong. And so there's there's a lot of kind of messiness as this, this industry is getting up and running. There's a lot of perceived uh, injustice and uh, uh, just complicated ins and outs. And so, you know, if you want, if you want drama, follow the cannabis industry. I, I'm doing my best, but uh, the, everything that, that this legalization is trying to do is so ambitious. And, um, you know, everyone wants the best outcome, but it's already uh, just complicated on, on both sides. Uh, well, look, Jason, I, for, but, for the people that you talk to who, who say that the only way that business can thrive is with little oversight and regulation from the state, right? Um, for, for those people, I mean, the birth of the cannabis industry in Connecticut is is like the absolute opposite of that. It is a right. it is a non entrepreneurial, completely state run enterprise that is trying to, as you say, be fair to all parties, but is never going to get there. Other states have had a real hard time implementing some of the fairness um, uh, policies that they've they've tried to in terms of uh, getting diversity into the into the workforce. That's a that's a huge thing, and I you know it's going to be fascinating for you to follow. <laughs> you know, John, too, I wanted to add this. I mean, this is kind of super relevant to this conversation is I want to be really clear, too, about who Clean Slate would help, right? When you talk about, you know, Black and Brown people predominantly, uh, particularly in, in Connecticut, right? Yep. I mean, Black people in Connecticut who make up uh, just a small percentage, 12 to somewhere between 12 to 14 percent, percent of, our, of our state population, right? They make up the vast majority of, of felony convictions, you know, in the state of Connecticut. So when we're talking about how the war on drugs has disproportionately affected communities of color. And you talk about specifically how having a criminal record can prohibit you from attaining housing and attaining educational opportunities, right? Which, and economic opportunities, right? All these various things that, that kind of intersect with people's uh, beats here. Uh, it's vastly important. And so, you know, the governor's, you know, administration and, and the track record when it comes to you know, addressing the issues that matter most to the most vulnerable communities, right? Low-income communities, uh, uh, communities consistent of mostly of people of color, 
it, it doesn't it doesn't look good it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't bode well right to have this, this major legislation that was promised that would provide so many uh, you know additional economic opportunities for folks to to kind of you know get get off the ground and get moving uh it, 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 the optics don't don't look too well and I, I think people are really feeling that too um who who are who you know are are who would directly uh benefit from clean sleep um, we've got a, a few minutes left in our conversation. We've got some more questions coming in. Um, Bryce asks a question, Ginny uh, here, affordable housing wasn't a hot topic in many communities until developers took advantage of 830G and were able to work around some zoning rules. Now efforts and interest is centered around how to revise, repeal 830G rather than actually increase affordable housing. Can these two efforts truly work together? Is anyone hopeful about that? So... Uh, there's like a lot of layers to that. There's question. a lot of layers. To, there's a lot of layers to that question. And maybe we can yeah. start by just, there's a lot of people on our call here who are very deeply steeped in Connecticut policy. But for those who don't uh, understand when someone's talking about 830G and in zoning, could you just explain a little bit about what that means? Sure. So 8-30G is a tool that Connecticut has had for several decades uh, to increase the deed-restricted affordable housing in the state. And when I say deed-restricted, I mean particular types of housing that the government has said, we will subsidize this. So housing choice vouchers is a good example. Public housing is another example. And this law says that there are court remedies for developers who propose affordable housing in towns that have less than 10% of their housing stock designated affordable. That's deed restricted affordable. And it is such an important distinction when we're talking about this issue. Um, 8-30G has been fairly controversial. I, I think it's important when we're talking about 8-30G to note that there are a lot of myths and misconceptions uh, out there about the law. For example, there's no statewide requirement that you have 10% of your housing stock be affordable. That, that's a misread of the law that's very common. Um, so that is what 8-30G is, and, and it has um, come under fire several times. We saw it during the Stefanowski campaign, uh, and recently the House Republicans have introduced a bill that would uh, have pretty wide-ranging effects on the law. Um, so I guess to your question of whether reforms to that law can work hand-in-hand -hand with zoning efforts, I, I don't want to say that no, that's impossible, but but many of these efforts around H-30G would weaken the law, which is sort of the opposite of what zoning reform is trying to do, which is to increase more affordable housing. Uh, I, I also would sort of say, you know, uh, I think affordable housing has gotten a lot more discussion in recent years, but to say that it wasn't uh, a hot topic years ago, I think is just not true uh, for many communities. Yeah, it, it's depending on who you are and where you live. It's been a very hot topic for a very, very long time. Exactly. Yeah. This this crisis did not pop up out of nowhere. But, but before we run out of time, I know, Erica, one, one last thing that I know you're looking at very closely is, is high-tech manufacturing, uh, how we can get support for more businesses that are trying to, to transition to new technologies. And of course, as we've been talking about all throughout this, get the workforce trained up. Well, what are we looking at in this legislative session? What sort of stories are you following when it comes to, to manufacturing right now? Yeah, um, just Connecticut is 
kind of holds itself in, in high regard in terms of being a, a center of advanced manufacturing. Um, but there's a lot of things changing in manufacturing these days, uh, a lot of high tech coming into it, um, robotics, uh, digitization, uh, and a lot of other words that uh, you might have to look up, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, AI and so forth. And so, um, you know, how do you bring an entire sector that has, has been a large portion of, of the state's GDP uh, into a new era? And um, the legislators have been working on this. There's uh, a lot of efforts that got started uh, within the last couple of years to um, provide education to small and medium-sized manufacturing businesses who uh, don't necessarily have access to these expensive technologies, but can go learn about them, learn how to use them, decide whether they want to buy them. So there's the piece of like educating the, the companies themselves. And then there's the piece of developing education programs for people who will work at those companies. Um, and uh, it, it's sort of an interesting, just little little piece of, of stuff that's going on at, at the Capitol this session. Um, how does the state support the transitioning of one of its, you know, marquee industries into a new era. So it's kind of an interesting thing to keep an eye on. Erica Phillips is the economic development reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, Ginny Monk is the housing and children's issues reporter. Jaden Edison covers justice for the Connecticut Mirror. I want to thank you all, not just for spending some time with me tonight and talking about your beats, but for your expertise and all the great reporting that you're doing. We really appreciate it. And thank you so much for your time. Our events tonight made possible in part through the support of CBIA. We thank them for their support. We also thank Gabby DeBenedictus, who ran all the technology behind the scenes here at the headquarters at the Connecticut Mirror in the Asylum Hill District of Hartford. So thank you so much, Gabby. One last thing for you. I know that you go to the Mirror all the time for your news and information. These reporters that uh, you heard from tonight, uh, Mark Pazniokas and Keith Faniff and all the others at the Connecticut Mirror, they do this work because of support from people who read the mirror, people like you. If you haven't yet for this year made that donation to the Connecticut Mirror, there's a big red donate button on the upper right corner. And I've been saying this in public radio for years, and it's like the God's honest truth. It doesn't matter if you give $5 or $20 or $10,000. It literally supports nonprofit, nonpartisan journalism of the type that the mirror does. It's not everywhere in America, folks. Not every place has a Connecticut mirror, but we have it because of people like you who've given in the past. So consider a gift right now. Hit that big donate button. Make a contribution today to support nonprofit, nonpartisan journalism in your backyard that covers this great state that we all love so much. 